If it's going to be connected to changing a system, white privilege, we have to understand what it looks like. Why is it being called that? Should that be labeled? I mean, no one wants to be labeled. When they say visible minority, they mean it because you are seen, you are picked on, and whiteness is invisible. And so sometimes putting people into either box makes it hard for them to come to the table. Yeah. But based on my experience, even with my family, the first time we encountered racism, it wasn't from white people. Uh, some people are struggling. We are not saying human struggles are not there, but like you, he used that right example. The system is structured that some people are in front of the line. I'm mortified. Like when I hear this, I'm mortified because I'm thinking, I don't think people realize the extent of the pain that goes on with people based on color. As a First Nations woman, you know, I am huge on bridging, building bridges and reconciliation. In order to do that, we have to be educated. And I think that's what I think that's what Providence is trying to say to us right now is, what storyline do we want to be a part of? The healing or the hurt, the blessing or the curse, what storyline do we want to be a part of? We're talking about racism today, a topic that can at times create a lot of tension with people, but it's important. Can a minority be racist? It depends on um, within their sphere of influence and uh, if that person is in a, is in a position of power. I've seen that happen. I've seen that taking place, you know, small workplaces, even uh, even in communities. So I would say, yeah, that that can happen. To be clear, bigotry is wrong. Um, uh, prejudice is I mean, all these things we're talking about are horrible, horrible things to enforce on another human being. Uh, but racism, that little that next level where it's power and authority and then person releasing their influence to 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 carry out that, that that's that's the next level of prejudice plus power okay so but and you you believe that a minority in a position of power can be racist i do i've seen that happen okay i do not think there is reverse racism well minorities as a group we we um as academics we talk about um you know um the majority not those who land outliers, people who fall outside the normal curve, you know, it's it's all about majority. So um, Black people as a whole, I can only speak to the Black experience, cannot be racist because historically, uh, we don't have any structures, nothing, uh, you know, we don't have any structures to perpetuate. So like I was saying, if I dislike you, um, nothing in the system gives me privilege, but everything in the system gives a white person privilege, even having their, uh, you know, white name, Emily White uh, applying for a job would get it done. Um, if my name of was Zita uh, Zamimba, I would not get it. And so, like I said, I've used the, um, the social structure already and I wouldn't uh, go over it. But when you look at the political system, the economic system, um, marriage, religion, and these are the systems that runs every society. It is modeled on Eurocentric ideals and therefore, if those ideals do not represent your group, there's no way you can be racist. I mean, you're talking about uh, majority. It's all about majority, you know, of, of the people, not the outliers. But at the same time, we're also saying even if the outliers perpetuate something, the ideology, it still impacts society. So there, I, I think there's got to be a little bit of room for some of the outliers if they're behaving that way. At the academic level, they've come up with theories that explained how 
minorities cannot be racist. And that's the academic level. And they've, um, they've done research. I can't go against it. But based on my experience, even with my family, the first time we encountered racism, it wasn't from white people. It was from Arab people. So minorities can be racist. I remember I was 11 years old, and we lived in this um, very very beautiful place in uh, in Kenya. At that time, we had some friends that were now um, supporting us. So we moved to this beautiful place where um, the assistant to the Egyptian amb ambassador lived also there with his family. He had two boys about our age. So every time we used to play, they used to call our names and try to play with us, but their dad will always um, prevent them from playing with us. And then one day, um, he he sent out a notice. There's there's these people called the Askari. So these are people who they kind they're like the watchmen of the apartment. So he sent out a notice all over the block saying that if any black child touches his car, their father is going to repaint the car or buy the car. So that was the first time. Then we 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 just heard something like that, and he said he used the word black. So that, that was the first time I also um, tried to understand, like, why are these people calling us black? You know, trying to understand. I was just 11 years old. So that was the first time we experienced racism. Who has power or what they think, you know, I mean, I, I keep thinking about human nature wanting to have power. It's all about wanting to have power. And, and the idea that I have to put another person down so I can have power over them. And we are talking about a system. And I, I love that, Zita, like when you said you're distinguishing it. This is not personal. It's a system that's in place. Um, and but but I think I think, too, you know, um, you know, you can say and I'm, I'm questioning this because you can say. Well, that system is in place that right away, for example, a white person is already a part of that system. They don't have to fight for that system. There's other issues. I'm a woman. I've bumped into things in other systems. I bumped into things I never thought in my life I would bump into as a white female that I've bumped into as a woman. Um, you know, that's a system of power. So, so I've got the experience where I have family in South Africa. And, um, you know, and again, so there's parts of South Africa that are that are governed pretty much 100 percent by by the, the South African, the black South Africans. And there's parts of South Africa that are still governed with with more from some of the white perspective. Right now, you know, in South Africa, you can have innocent farmers that are being murdered because they're white. If I go driving in Durban area and my car breaks down. Um, I've got Zulu friends, so I feel safer when I hang out with my Zulu friends as a white person than if I'm with my son who is white, Canadian white. There does appear to be right now a lot more power, especially where my son lives, um, in jobs, everything. The blacks run everything. They may not even have the competency sets that are required. They still are going to be the boss. You can have someone that has got a PhD, they'll be working in a much more minor role because they're they're displacing, they're, they're, they've shifted it all. And so you've got a lot of issues there. And I've definitely experienced um, where I have felt like as a minority going into South Africa, I have felt and I've traveled all over the world in very dangerous environments. I've never felt my life at stake like I felt in South Africa. I personally think any human being that wants power could be cruel and react from a place of hate or bitterness or hurt or whatever the reason. But I personally think every human being has the capability of being racist and trying to oppress someone else. 
you know, for whatever reason. I, I think it's a human human issue. Coming on the panel as a First Nations woman and being from Canada, you know, and I, I grew up in the North, you know, and I grew up with different representations. You know, we had the Chippewan and I'm Cree. And then we also had the integration of the Black coming from BC because, you know, we're, we're a nationwide, we're Canada. And so I had an experience where well, I wasn't allowed to talk about a certain tribe, you know, and if I was to talk about that tribe, it would be a segregation, you know, it would be something. So, you know, when Michelle was talking about minorities, you know, I've experienced that even in my own culture. And I think it has to, and I like what Michelle said. I think this is a human, you know, we want to dominate. We want that power. And if we don't come in with humility, learning from one another and going low and saying is, what is it that you can teach me? You know, because we have so much that we can learn in Canada, not only, you know, globally, and I think this is why this platform was created. Thank you, Serena. And I, I, that's the voice of reason there. You know, I'm glad that we've got these different races represented here because some of the questions I'm, I'm asking as well is going to help the audience to hear your perspective because that's honestly how people think, right? And, and so the more that we can expose the mindsets or the thinking from different views, the more that people will have a shared understanding. Like I didn't honestly know that was the definition of racism, that it was connected to a system of power. I, I was really ignorant on that. I didn't know that. That is just like, it takes, it takes a burden off of people from, from making it personal because, you know, like it's, you know, as you know, you think about it where people feel hated just for my color of my skin, um, you know, because I because my ancestors did something, you know, way back when to feel like I'm hated when I actually love people and I don't know how to maneuver through this. But now to say, wow, it's not because the color of my skin, it's because I'm connected it, to sources of power. There's more power associated with my race. And that's actually oppressed people and it's caused harm to people. And it's not, you know, and, and that in itself can take a lot of weight off people. I think we're going to have a lot more people willing to listen to how are we going to look at these systems that are in place that are oppressing people um, from a place of, of reason rather than from a place of I'm hated. Because if you feel hated, you put up a defensive wall, don't you? And that's what human beings do. You feel like, I don't want to listen to you if you just hate me. But if you can explain to me and I can catch some compassion and I get a better understanding, their white privilege is real. Therefore, equity, not equality, should be our affirmative action. And I mean, that's kind of the solution to white privilege. Do you guys want to address that a little bit? When it comes to quickly to the issue of white privilege, I would encourage everybody on this platform to watch uh, a TED talk by an American professor, Robin DiAngelo. She is an educator. He said there's something called white fragility. All white people by virtue of default have racist tendencies by virtue of default. If, because her argument is you were born with this privilege. You didn't ask for it, you were given to it. By virtue of that, you cannot trace to any historical experiences of oppression for a lengthy period of time. And so by virtue of that, you, she said, you could be married to a black person, a person of color, you could have person of color colored as friends and you still hold this, uh, you know, racially discriminative tendencies just by virtue of being white. And that was her nice way and an academic way of 
emphasizing the existence of white privilege, that the fact that you 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 have this uh, privilege, you cannot connect to any historical experiences of oppression for a lengthy period of time. You've not been sold into slavery. You know, you've not, uh, you know, 400 years of being oppressed or being told that you are not good enough or being even uh, dissected as a human, that told that you are not human. You know, we, we were made scientific experiments and they justified the reasons why we didn't qualify. We were one third in American, uh, you know, constitution, black people were one, one quarter, one third of human beings in a constitution one time and it was changed. By virtue of not having that historical connection, you have privilege. And it is called white fragility that, you know, you have this privilege and that is that you could be married to a black person. You could have all black people as your friends. But by default, you cannot connect to these historical experiences. Then you have, you know, privilege. So I cannot speak for a white person on how we can, um, you know, institute equity because people see the world from their perspective and their standpoint. It is a lived experience. Until you live in a particular body, you cannot speak to how equity uh, should be managed. Should it be an affirmative um, action? I don't know. I doubt because I am not too optimistic when it comes to affirmative action. For me, it has to be a structural change. And I am not optimi optimistic that the structures that govern society is going to change in my lifetime or in my grandparents' lifetime, in my grandchildren's lifetime. I am not optimistic. At Just all. to clarify again for our audience, because I promise you, a lot of people don't even understand this. They don't understand what's going on if people are not tracking. You know, so your definition of white privilege is that because as a white person, as a white race, you have not, you do not, you cannot connect to the history and the experience of, you're saying slavery, but there are the, the Irish that can. So is it all whites or is it just some whites? Because if that's how you're defining it is the reason why I have privilege is because I cannot connect. What about the white people that have been through slavery and have been through what they deal with? Like that's, I, I honestly am trying to clarify it because it does seem to be quite a broad um, description of what white privilege is. Are there characteristics of white privilege or is it just based on that definition? I mean, just by being born white, you say white people uh, were enslaved. Was it for 400 years? You know, we talk, these are systems. So uh, we were not just enslaved. We were um, displayed. And if you look at the history of freak shows and black people were just put out there, you, you, should, you should Google the story of Sarji Batman. She was a South African woman with, um, you know, on equal body proportions. She had very huge backside and she was taken to England and was displayed as a freak show and people would touch her and they would give her money and they would give her a patron, the person who owned her and she caught a disease. And even through her disease, she was made to uh, hold a stick and so showcase her body nudity. Yeah. She died, and I just taught my students about that. And so it's not about slavery has a, have existed in different parts, even in tribal African cultures before uh, the colonialists came. If they went for war, it was part of booty. They, you know, they catch people, they take them, you go work. But we're talking about this lengthy period that established a system. I think that white people have to understand, if because it's a bit of a label being put on white people, you are white people privileged, right? So they have to understand what this is that's being placed, right? And so I'm, I'm you know, we're talking to our viewer, viewers out here, they're gonna be listening to this and say, 
I don't know how I feel about this. You know, they've got, for example, in the States where they're having a white person get down on their knees and repent for being white and, and, and that they should say that because I'm white, uh, you know, and, and, and it's almost like now you are the evil one. That's what's coming out there. They don't understand the conversation of you're a part of a system that was reinforced over history, over time to oppress a people group. And I, again, I would argue with you against like with the Dalits, the untouchables, it's been their entire, it's it, the history of the Dalit people in India goes on as long as the oppression of, of the black people. So I would have to say, um, and they, they are considered untouchables and even the, the tribal people are even lower than them and they're not even human. I mean, they can take a cigarette and, and put it out on a small child um, and burn them because they're not even considered human. They, they, are, they are good enough have to take take the dead people out of their houses, but they won't even let them work with them. They won't touch them. And that's been going on for generations. So I, I would have to say, you know, when you look at some countries, that's been going on for a long time in their systems. But as far as like here in Canada, we have to understand this. What, you know, what does white privilege mean? What does it look like? Because some of the examples, people could say, well, there's this example like I'm giving, right? So what, you know, if it's going to be connected to changing a system, white privilege, we have to understand what it looks like. Why is it being called that? Should that be labeled? I mean, no one wants to be labeled. You don't want to be labeled as I'm a slave. Uh, you know, I don't know if I want to be labeled as I'm, a, I'm an elitist, but I want to know what might be going on in my mind. I might want to know what's going on in my, the systems of equality. I might want to understand that rather than receive a label Right. So that's can you guys help me out here? So talk a little bit more about this. So uh, in my in my class, I do a little exercise where I put three trash cans in, in the front of the room. I tell my students, I said, right where, from where you are, everybody grab a piece of paper and make a make a ball. And they ball up the piece of paper. I say, okay, from right from your seat, these two, three trash cans, they represent your opportunity to make it in society. But I want you to get that. That the, the ball of paper into the trash can, but no one can move their chairs. You have to stay where you are. Of course, the people in the front of the room, they go, wow, layup. This is easy. You know, and the guys in the back of the room, the girls in the back of the room, they're trying to shoot that three-point shot like Steph Curry, trying to make it from the back of the room. And then uh, you know, so I announced the winners or whatever, and I said, okay, what you just experienced is what it is to have privilege. The people in the front of the room. They didn't ask to be placed there. They were just kind of born there, placed there. What your room, what this room represents right now is the general population. Now the people closest to the proximity of where uh, their access to uh, you know, enormous opportunity and, and making it in society, those people have the closest access to it. That is privilege. And that's a good way to, to help people understand it. My thing is this. Your, your job is to use your privilege to put it at risk to see other people flourish. Okay. And you know, privilege or favor, when it's hoarded, it turns into an idol called status. Right. Uh, so privilege is all about, at the end of the day, to whom much is given, much is required. And, uh, and, and it's coming on a person to expend it in a way that's helped other people flourish. So I, I believe everybody has privilege to a degree. Um, and white privilege is definitely, there's something that's there. I wouldn't yeah. go so far as to say that every white person in, implicitly is a racist. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that because I don't want to put people in the categories. I would say that every person, when it comes to dealing with a race issue, has blind spots. When I'm doing conflict resolution, what I have to do in a room is balance out the power.
So if I have a really, like, for example, a person in a place of power or authority, and I might be working with an employee, and they have less power than that leader, I have to make sure the power is balanced before they can actually have a conversation, because one is disadvantaged. If they say something, there could be consequences, right? And you're kind of talking about that. You're saying you're saying with with much that's been given, much is required. And and so if we, you know, if we live, if, if I've had privilege, I've had greater opportunity um, therefore, I need to be giving back more. I need to, need to be open how to balance out the power because right now there's a huge disadvantage. For me, African-Americans like myself, I'm not making that much money, but I have friends, uh, myself and others. I went to Morehouse College and uh, took classes with the current senator uh, who's, who's there in Georgia now um, and a few other guys who are doing amazing things, right? And they're doing amazing things in the community, but there are a lot of us who have moved on, we now live in a nice neighborhood and nobody's giving back. I think there's something about the privilege that we had. We had to use our privilege to go back to some of those old neighborhoods that they came out of. Same thing with uh, the Hispanic person that, that starts to make it and moves out of the barrio and never looks back. Uh, I think that all those things speak to that. But when it comes to race and privilege, I think there is there's there's uh, there is some uh, credence to uh, white privilege, but I, I think this is a more nuanced, more complex uh, conversation because I don't want to throw every white person into being a perpetual racist and neither do I want to put any minority into being a perpetual victim. I believe it's more nuanced conversation, more complex than just putting people in the boxes. Uh, I, I do see a lot of people doing the, the mansplaining and, 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 and also the, the white explaining that kind of stuff and dealing with this, I think the main thing is, is getting people to the table to talk. And so sometimes putting people into either box makes it hard for them to come to the table. Yeah. Well, some out there really believe, um, they come with the mindset that if you're white privileged now, you should suffer and you should pay because we paid. So they actually, like I've heard that out there. And and so you should know what it feels like and therefore we want you to suffer. But you sound, it sounds more like you're saying, no, we're not trying to, we're just saying, let's bring everybody up. Let's not make someone punished and beaten and they're down the ground because that's where you're going to get pushback. You're not going to get people coming to the table saying, how do we address the system that is clearly based in racism in that it's using its power to oppress a people group based on their race. Let's sit down and talk about that rather than let's let's beat these people down and so that they have to try and hold on to their turf, right? And hold on to their territory. They're kind of appealing a little bit more to the heart and the mind and compassion for human beings and motivating people from that perspective. Everyday kind of life situation. Um, Andy Crouch writes about this in his book, uh, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power where he, uh, he's, he's in another country flying to America and, uh, and he's in this long line in security. And all of a sudden, for no reason at all, they grab Andy Crouch and his little white self <laughs> and uh, bring him basically to the front of the line because just simply because he was an American. And so he thought in that moment, wow, how many times have I been moved to the front of the line and I didn't even realize it? So he, he described it pretty, pretty well. So there are a lot of times just because of the way you're acculturated and where you are. Of course, I come from the South and I've, I've seen some, some of those things a, a lot and uh, experienced some of that as well uh, growing up, just uh, racist things that happened to me or whatever. But my point is uh, many times uh, when, you're, when you're part of that, you move forward, you don't even realize it. Uh, another example, um, my father was a great man, right? African-American man, amazing businessman, 
uh, in my, my little town in Texas where we were from. But my daddy was so well known that um, he never paid for any of his traffic fines. Zero. <laughs> and no one had more traffic tickets than my dad. <laughs> All right. And, uh, and, and it was because he knew every judge. He knew uh, uh, he knew most of the people who empowered authority there in that in that city that we're from, and nothing ever happened to him. Um, when my parents divorced, and just put this out there, my parents divorced, and um, uh, at nine years old, from nine to nine, nine to eighteen, my dad never paid any child support. He gave me money, but he refused to give any money to my to my mother, and um, and she took him to court several times, and not once did he ever uh, lose a case. Uh, on paying child support simply because he used his privilege to protect himself. Selfishness um, of human beings themselves, like human beings can be selfish and they can use privilege to get ahead and who doesn't want to get ahead and you'd have to be able to deny yourself in order to put someone forward, right? Because who would want to give up your privilege um, you know, in that kind of a way or share it or whatever, not to minimize, you know, horrific issues, you know, where there's been white privilege, um, you know, you know, to the point where um, if, for example, you know, a white person commits a crime against a black person and because the white person has white privilege, they might get off. But I mean, that is an important topic. And, you know, I'm asking it really sincerely because I think we need to create awareness as to what it looks like and awareness for decision makers and influencers within system. When we say white privilege, we are not saying that white people are not hardworking, you're not working hard to get ahead in life. All we are saying, and, and I'll use a few examples, most European uh, cultures have a more powerful passport. You can take your passport, you don't need visas, and you travel up across different countries. People who are from African countries cannot do that. They need to go through a, a, a rigorous process, and that is privilege. Even at the airport, I'm always double-checked for no reason. I am picked in the line, I'm double-checked for no reason, and it, it's all part of the privilege, because that is why I, I said this one time, that when they say visible minority, they mean it, because you are seen, you are picked on, and whiteness is invisible. One time, we were exiting a store and the, and the buzzer beeped. There was a, co a white couple in front of us and they had a baby stroller. They did not check them. They told me and my brother to stay behind and check them. And so that is privilege. Even in schools, do you know that black girls are six times more likely to be suspended? Things like hairstyle and, and, and stuff like that compared to, you know, white boys and even white uh, uh, girls? You should check the statistics. And this is in Ontario. So these are the privilege. Health system. Serena Williams nearly died of preeclampsia. Beyonce said the same thing. Black women have a higher chance of dying from giving birth compared to any other group in America. White women do not have. I teach these things every day and I use the research. And that is the privilege that when a, a white person, a white woman gives birth and say, I have this pain, they are taken seriously. Medical students have said it many times that, oh, we are trained to, uh, from, we are trained believing that black people have a thicker skin to pain. We need to situate these analysis within structural context of health, of schools, and how even schools, um, you know, deal with students from minority. Ontario, they have something called streaming. 
and they put black kids in vocational. They don't put them in higher academic groups. So these are the systemic things. You cannot, I cannot say that I have a PhD and I know I have privilege, but I cannot use my experience to overshadow what the majority is going through. It doesn't mean you will not work hard to get ahead in your life. White people are working hard. Some people are struggling. We're not saying human struggles are not there, but like you, he used that right example. The system is structured that some people are in front of them. I think you have to feel a little bit of what it feels like to be put at the back of the line. The message that you get sent, I would imagine, for a person that continually has that happen is, human worth. Am I not worth anything? I'm experiencing pain and you're making me suffer because you have this weird idea that my skin can handle more pain than you. You are letting me like, I'm mortified. Like when I hear this, I'm mortified because I'm thinking, I don't think people realize the extent of the pain that goes on with people based on color and based on, you know, what's happened. So thank you. I want to just say thank you for opening this up. Uh, African-American lady is sharing a story with her new white friend. And she said the reason, uh, one, one of the things that was so painful to her is that she went to a hospital, uh, ready to deliver a baby. And uh, the the nurse walked in and, and said, look, you're not ready yet. And she said, well, I already, my water broke and that's why I rushed in. You're not ready yet. And don't call me back in here until you're ready. Went out to go help another, uh, help a white lady deliver her baby. She came back, there were complications. Long story short, she lost her baby. So yeah, those, those are the kind of stories that are, that are out there. In my family, I have a 200 year old kettle pot that was used by the slaves in my family. And they use it for cooking, but it was passed down because secretly they use it for prayer. They would sneak away to go pray in the barn at night. And they use that pot to, uh, as an acoustic means to keep their prayers from being heard. So that pot's been passed out in my family for, you know, like seven, eight generations. And I've been taking it around the country to talk about not just the black Christians that were praying, but also some of those white Christian abolitionists who fought for their freedom. So uh, anyway, in 2003, 2004, I had a dream with Dr. King and where God basically dealt with me about my unforgiveness issues with the, the police in my area, because I've gone through some horrific things with uh, being singled out and, and uh, 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 you know, uh, what they call it, driving while black. I had a lot of that uh, in my 30s. And also, too, with uh, uh, some uh, run-ins with uh, being chased by some of the white guys in my community, uh, just for no reason at all, calling me the N-word, said they're gonna shoot and kill me and my, my friends, I experienced that. So I dealt with my unforgiveness issues and that with this powerful dream just happened the next day. I was actually speaking and doing a reconciliation meeting at Dr. King's first church, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. Well, good friend of mine asked me to share that story and bring my kettle and talk about prayer and, um, and do that at the Lincoln Memorial on MLK celebration day. Well, there was a white guy who had a dream that led him to that event. And we became friends. We've been friends for 17 years now. Well, fast forward. That white friend of mine, he found out that the Civil War in our nation ended in his family's front yard. So we thought, man, what a what a cool coincidence. I have this kettle pot with slaves pray for freedom. You had this house in your family history where General Lee fought his last battle. We thought, wow, what a cool coincidence. But then we coincidentally stumbled on more research and we learned that it was his family who owned my family where that kettle pot came from. And we met at the Lincoln Memorial, 
both led by dreams to the place where Dr. King said in his I have a dream speech, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood. So I've been baptized into this whole thing. I mean, his family is also the family that invented the Confederate flag. So through the same family where the flag of rebellion was raised up in our nation, the flag of surrender went up in the front yard. But then he also had somebody in his family who was an abolitionist and fought against slavery. So it's like all of our families, we have these, you know, these dominating themes called generational curses and generational blessings that represent storylines for family, what, what it's about. And I think that's what, I think that's what Providence is trying to say to us right now is what storyline do we want to be a part of? The healing or the hurt, the blessing or the curse, what storyline do we want to be a part of? And so these conversations that we have in the key. And so I've been baptized into this thing, to be honest, Dr. Z. And I had to learn all this stuff uh, from a totally different perspective, but not just from, uh, you know, what I read in, in, in the Bible, but understand what's happening uh, in, in culture and, and, and look at it through, through other people's lenses. And so that's why I appreciate this conversation with you so much. As a First Nations woman, you know, I am huge on bridging, building bridges and reconciliation. In order to do that, we have to be educated. And that's why this platform is so incredibly important because each one of us is presenting something to the table and it's actually going on a way broader scale that we are so in desperate need of. You know, we need to be educated. We need to actually say, what does this actually mean? What is the definition of this? You know, right. and actually bring the stories to the forefront. And then by that way, and having the ability to listen, genuinely listen with humility and saying, tell me your story. How did you get to where you got to? And then right away, then what happens is I think we actually start to open up our hearts and go, I identify my story becomes your story and your story becomes my story. What I've noticed out there in society, there's a lot of um, solutions. And in, in conflict resolution, the rule of thumb is people usually come in fighting about the way or the solution to a problem. They fight my way versus your way. We should have, for example, it should be equity, not equality. We should defund the police or not defund the police. We should do it this way or not do that way. And I understand that what's behind it is the attempt to actually deal with the systemic issues. It's like a solution to the problem. The only problem with that is that there are a people group that may already understand the problem. Some of them are coming with motives to reconcile. Some of them are just picking angry and they want justice, right? And But there's a whole population that does not understand the problem. So if you push a solution and they think you're just against them, if they think that you're against white people and you come to Canada fighting against white people, they're going to push back if they don't understand this is, I love what you said, Zita, again, again, it's a systemic issue. It's not personal. It's a systemic issue. But if you can actually hear and really hear with compassion, you know, look what's happened. You know, how would you feel? Every mother could relate to a woman that's going to have a baby. And what would it be like if somebody ignored the, in, the intuition of a woman knowing where she's at, even in the transition of pregnancy, and she knows what's going on, and somebody to minimize and poo-poo her because she's of another race, and they've been trained to believe she can handle pain, or like, you know, that is crazy. So, so to actually have a conversation where you sit down and say, these are real stories, 
this really happened? And before we jump quickly into a solution or the way to solve it, you'll get a whole lot more buy-in to effective solutions if you can talk about it.